This podcast contains details about sexual abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised. This episode also contains details of suicide. If you are having thoughts of suicide, or if you know anyone that's having thoughts of suicide, there are people that can help. You can reach out to the Suicide and Crisis Hotline by texting or calling 988. That's something that people cannot and should not bear alone, and there are people that are there to help. Before we get started, we wanted to first of all thank all of our listeners who have joined us so far on this journey, and there is much more still to come. We've had multiple people reach out to us recently that would like to share their story, and because of this, we are going to take some time to talk with them and give them an opportunity to share their experiences and knowledge of this case. We will be skipping a week to prepare additional content, and we'll be back to release episode 12 the following week. In the last episode, we started to go through what happened during the penalty phase of Jack's case after he pled guilty. In this episode, we will cover how the rest of the victim impact hearing went and find out if justice is finally served and if Jack's reign of terror is actually over. We will be hearing from Betty Dickey, Charles Peckett, Heath Stocks, and Rob Evett. Rob was a scout in Jack's troop, and I reached out to him when we first started this podcast. And during a recent conversation, he told me that he would like to share his story and what he remembers from this time. This is the first interview that he has given besides an anonymous one in the late 90s. And I could not be more grateful to him for sharing his story with us. My name is Rob Evett, and I was a member of Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Order of the Arrow in Lone Oak, Arkansas from 1983 up until around 1993 when I graduated high school. I lived in Little Rock until I was four, uh, four or five. And then my family moved out to actually just on the outside of Lone Oak called Furlough. It's a little community between Lone Oak and, and Jacksonville. It's about 15 minutes from Lone Oak. It's out in the country, but it's Lone Oak phone number, Lone Oak address, Lone Oak school district. So yes, I went kindergarten through 12th grade in Lone Oak, Lone Oak schools. We left off talking about the internal struggle that Heath was dealing with at the time, which he described on the stand during the victim impact hearing. So let's talk a little bit more about what else he said on the stand while he was giving his statement. When Betty Dickey questioned Heath on the stand about how he felt about Jack, he said he was a friend and a mentor, and he called him father. And when he was questioned, they said, you, you called him father? And he said, me and dad, we got along, but we had a hard relationship. I had a learning disability, and it kind of put a strain at home. And Jack was someone who always complimented me. He gave him compliments, told him he was worth something, and he loved him. And when Betty Dickey asked Heath, you loved him? He said, with all my heart. And she said, you loved him better than your family. And Heath answered, I would have died for him if it meant protecting him. And that really reminds me of what Matt Carter said when we talked to him about if he felt that maybe Jack had control over Heath and that influenced Heath pleading guilty to the murder of his parents and how Mac referred to it as a soldier laying down his life for his abuser. And I feel with Heath saying that right there, I would have died for him if it meant protecting him. That is some serious control. And that's when he's in prison. Obviously didn't have that control right then because he's coming to the realization of what he went through, but that is some control. 
And even later on in that same line of questioning, Betty asks him, you still love Jack Walls? And Heath says, part of me does because part of me is part of him. And he says that he can't really describe how he feels. He does say that part of him does hate Jack, but he says that he still has love for him. That is actually understandable because he had been a father figure to him for so long. And just taking him under his wing when he was a child. And you look at pictures of Heath when he was that age. That's a little, little boy. And to start at that age and give that child everything that they had been missing, it's not that surprising that he is so conflicted, sitting on the stand, looking Jack Walls in the eyes and confronting him. That that had to be really conflicting. Because on top of the abuse is the brainwashing and the mind control and the programming. And a person has to fight really hard to go against that. When Betty Dickey started her investigation into this case and interviewing those involved, her investigation led her to talk to Annie May, who was Barbara's mother, as well as Reverend Marble. And she shared with us what that experience was like. One Saturday afternoon, I went over to furlough to visit with the Methodist minister. I asked him about this, and he said a week or two weeks before, he stocks killed his family. Barbara, his mother, walked in on him and Jack in bed together. Are you aware of that? Mm-hmm. I heard that. Okay. But the minister said, Barbara told me. Of course, coincidentally, a week or so later, you know, they're dead. Barbara Stock's mother, do you know that story? In Annie Mae. That she had told her? Yes. With the deputy prosecutor, Jody, and victim witness coordinator, Joy, and I went over to talk to Barbara Stock's mother. Sat in her house one day and asked her about this. And Barbara had apparently told her mother what she had told the minister. And then I said to Annie Mae, why did you not tell anybody about this, the prosecuting attorney? And Annie Mae said, because there was a gag order. And we both almost all fell out of our seats because we thought, you know, in that investigation of East Stocks killing his family, why did you not tell anybody what Barbara had told you? And apparently the minister had not told either because when I said to the minister, I'm going to have to call you as far as a witness, and he said, can't do it, confidentiality. And I said, they're dead. There's no confidentiality. He asked his bishop. The bishop not only told him he could if we were going to still have the full trial, but she wrote me a letter which said, you know, we all as Christians have a duty to fight in evil and injustice wherever we find it. And she had said she appreciated that I'd done what I should do. It was a nice compliment, but he didn't have to testify. He was then released by her because I told him I was going to subpoena him if he didn't come willingly as a witness. During the hearing, Annie Mae took the stand and was questioned by Betty Dickey. And it's really interesting to read the transcript from this hearing because at one point, Betty Dickey asks Annie Mae Harris, she says, your daughter had told you just before she died that she knew there was a sexual, and at that point, Hubert Alexander jumps in. And he says, Judge, just for the record, I, you know, I'm tempted to object, but I just wanted to, you know, I know this is a victim. We've sat here and listened to hearsay on hearsay on hearsay. And there's no way for us to question these people. It's just a statement that's conveniently made. And I just want to object, you know, for the record, again, for the same purpose. And Annie Mae said, that's right, they're dead. 
The judge then says part of the reason for a victim impact statement is for healing and therapy. And so I'm going to allow them to do this. And Hebert Alexander says, I just didn't want to look like an idiot sitting here, judge, and not say anything. And the judge says, you've done your client an excellent job, Mr. Alexander. And Hebert says, thank you, judge. Thankfully, the judge lets Betty Dickey continue with her questioning of Annie Mae Harris and Hebert Alexander just has to sit down. And I also feel like it's kind of cold to say that it's hearsay because none of these people are here to talk about this while this woman is testifying about the fact that her daughter is dead. And this is what she said. And you have boys lined up to talk about what your client did to them and you're going to call it hearsay? To me, that's a slap in the face to all those boys too. Another name that we've heard a lot about recently with this case is Reverend Marble. And he's actually brought to the stand in this victim impact hearing. And he does state when they ask him to state his name, if he's the minister, they want to point out to the court and ask him if he's there under subpoena. And he says, yes, he is. And he's there with the permission of the bishop of the United Methodist Conference. It's pretty obvious he did not want to be there. He even states under oath that he is not there on a voluntary basis. He states a lot of other interesting things under oath as well, such as Barbara Stocks actually talked to him about Heath and Jack's relationship twice, not just once, but twice. He describes the second time that she talked to him about it, and it was right after Christmas. And he says that she came in with a total fear of what she had seen and the confrontation with Heath. The night of January 8th, which was a very sleety, rainy night, Barbara and Heather were at the church. The bishop was there making her rounds, and that night Barbara said, we need to talk. And he said, I'm available whenever. Let me know. And she says, I'll get back with you. And nine days later, she was dead. Something else he brings up is he had conversations with Heath Stocks at the jail and at the state hospital. And in those conversations... Heath told Reverend Marble about Jack and that Jack had told him to kill his family. And so they question him and say, until today, you were under the privilege, the confidential privilege, and that's why you've not said anything. And he said, that's correct. And what's absolutely crazy is in the cross-examination, he's talking to him and asking Reverend Marble if he had tried to talk to Heath about telling his lawyer about this. And Reverend Marble's answer is, I tried, but every time we got to talking about it, Heath would break down and sob and sob for quite a while. And we could never really get him to, uh, you know, and when they ask him again, did you at the state hospital, you visit him, did you talk to him about it there? And he says, oh, he sobbed again. And the question and said, did you know that he was over there to try to determine if he was crazy or not? And Reverend Marble said that that's correct. And it blows my mind that you have a preacher that goes to visit someone in his congregation in jail and at the state hospital. And the 20 year old young man tells him that Jack told him to kill his family. And he doesn't do anything with that conversation because he starts crying. Like you said, that is mind-blowing. And not to mention the fact that, like we've talked about in previous episodes, Reverend Marble was a mandatory reporter. He had an obligation to report the fact that he knew that Heath was being sexually abused. The fact that he stays quiet because of this confidentiality 
feels like a cop-out. Absolutely. And they follow up and say, do you really, preacher, as a preacher, think that your confidentiality to him is so important that you let him go to prison for the rest of his life and not say a word and you're going to get punished for it? And Marvel answers, I can't tell. And then they ask, how can you sleep at night knowing that he's down there and you could have done something to help? And Reverend Marvel says, well, it's one of those things we have to do. Another very interesting statement that's given on this stand is by James Russell Moneypenny, who is a psychologist. And when he's talking to the court, he says he's been in private practice in Little Rock since 1982. He has a general practice and he sees people for therapy. He's also been called upon to testify in court as he is today. He does consulting. He does two days a week at the Arkansas Department of Corrections. He does pre-employment screening. He works with law enforcement agencies, including the Arkansas State Police, the city of Little Rock. He does say that he has experience working with pedophiles down at the prison in various capacities. And so then he is questioned and asked if he could tell the judge about the Journal of Sex Research. And so he goes on to talk about an article that was in the 1997 Journal of Sex Research that he feels is very relevant to the case. And when he describes the article, he says that he thinks that it is of particular relevance because it provides a context in the field of child sexual abuse. And he says that for many years, there has been preconceived ideas about how sexual abuse comes about. And more importantly, what happens as a result? What are the effects? And unfortunately, it's a very difficult topic to study. So he talks about this article and the statistics from it. And he says, survivors as a group are much less likely to experience the kind of harm that we normally feared and thought. You know, we are looking at a very narrow sample of people of the worst. And the truth is there's a whole population of survivors that have been able to adjust and cope. And he goes on to say that if someone has been sexually abused for a short period of time, or a long period of time, it's not going to really make much of a difference. That people have long-term sexual abuse fall into the same category as short-term sexual abuse. And so when he's cross-examined, he's asked where he found that article. And he says the Journal of Sex Research. And so it comes to light that he was asked to come to court and talk about that particular article. When asked if he's talked to any of the victims, he says no, he's not spoke to any of the victims. And then he's asked, you're wanting the judge to use an article where some victims just got over it? And he says, well, not just some victims. The article suggests or indicates that their research shows that most victims just get over it. And he's questioned and says, and you believe everything you read? And he said, I believe it's a sound study. And then he's asked, have you taken the time to, in your expertise, to come here to testify, to learn anything about what happened to these boys? And he says, no. Wow. So he goes and testifies based on an article that they ask him to come talk about without talking to any of these boys. This expert witness has no knowledge of this case that he's testifying in. It's like they're grasping at anything they can find. Let's get this guy over here to talk about this article, and that's going to answer everybody's questions. Find a random doctor who will say what we want him to say on the stand. While all these victims of Jack's are sitting there in the courtroom 
I can't imagine how that must have felt. I would have been pissed. And how terrible to do to those boys, too. They're struggling with all of these things that they've been through. And this man on the stand is just saying they'll get over it. Because this article says they will. And he's supposed to be the professional. These boys were failed at every turn for years by so many people over and over and over and professionals. I can't even imagine what would have happened if Peckett hadn't come into town and if Betty Dickey hadn't taken over for Larry Cook. While so many people involved in the case had a chance to tell their story on the stand during this hearing, one of those that didn't was Rob Evett. Rob was a victim of Jack's, and he suffered many years of manipulation and sexual abuse. While Rob's parents were able to provide for the family, there wasn't a lot of extra. Scouting and trips to Philmont were not cheap. But Jack was right there, and he had what the family needed. He found people that needed odd jobs done. He would stop by and drop off a pair of boots that he had ordered. They came in the wrong size, but they just happened to fit Rob. And conveniently enough, Jack found an anonymous sponsor who paid for Rob to attend Philmont. This also happened to be where Jack first abused him. In addition to the abuse, and similar to what he did with Heath, Jack started to introduce additional violent acts. Because of the statute of limitations, Rob was not included as one of the victims that Jack was charged with. And so we wanted to give him an opportunity to share his story as well. The only thing that Jack ever asked me to do that would be anything in that at lines, he had me to research how to have a house catch on fire. He owned a rent house in town, close to the outskirts of town. And he and I would go there. That was another one of his places where he could take people. And, you know, he would, that was also one of my odd job locations. I would go and do things at that house from time to time. And, you know, I had kind of started doing some electrical work at the time. This was after I had graduated or I said doing some electrical work. I knew some about electronics and, you know, he had asked me, do you know any way to make a house burn down accidentally? And, you know, and I told him, yeah, I mean, I think I could figure it out. We started researching, leaving the gas on and making a short circuit with the telephone line, calling the telephone, making a spark, boom, blow up the house. You know, to the point that we had even kind of, you know, ran through exactly how that would work. And then I don't even remember what it was somewhere that got taken off the table. And that was probably, as far as being scared of Jack, that was probably the first time that I was really scared. Because I knew I was going to do it. I was going to figure out how to burn down a house. And I, you know, I think he was wanting to claim the insurance or do something for whatever reason. He was just wanting that house to go away. And I think that was the first time that I ever questioned myself with, wow, he's asking me to do something. I could really get into big trouble with this. So I better, but instead of thinking I could really get into trouble with this. I need to report this to somebody. My thought process was, wow, I could really get into trouble with this. I better not screw this up. When you found out that Jack was arrested, were you surprised? How'd that make you feel? Honestly, my 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 first initial thought was, wow, the shit's about to hit the fan. Because, again, I had gotten a phone call and someone said that Wade had gone over to Jack's house and pulled a gun on Jack, and, you know, I didn't know the exact details, but basically at gunpoint, you know, he made Jack, you know, confess to Charlie and Karen, Mr. and Mrs. Knox, about what all he had done. And, you know, I had a, again, I had a, a friend 
that was also in the group. And he and I had stayed in, in contact, you know, throughout the years. And, uh, you know, every once in a while when we would hear something, you know, we would, would talk. And we had a place that, that, that we would, you know, that we would meet and hang out with. And, you know, he called me and told me a little bit about it. And he said, you know, let's, let's meet tomorrow. And I said, absolutely. And so we, you know, the two of us had a meeting and, you know, we talked about everything that, you know, that, I, you know, I had him kind of run through the story again and, you know, he, you know, we're like, well, you know, what, what's going to happen here? And I'm like, man, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if he's if he's doing that and Jack's been arrested, I mean, it's not going to take, you know, somebody's going to start naming names at some point. And at that point, when you realize that I realized how heavy involved I was in the group there towards the end, like I said, Jack ran by a lot of names by me. What do you think about this person? What do you think about this person? Let's do that. You know, I was at, you know, all the campouts, all the, I mean, I've been out to the farm multiple times. It was just, you know, I, I you know, there was a part of me that was scared because I didn't know what was going to happen. I was embarrassed because God, I don't want anybody to know what, what happened to me. You know, what are they going to think about me? Let's be honest again. This was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And, you know, the the LGBTQ community that exists now and the support that they have now, it wasn't there 30 years ago, especially in small town Arkansas. And, and you know, you're now talking about the, that you were molested by somebody. And so your first thought is, oh, my gosh, people are people are going to think I'm gay. People are going to think that I'm, I'm, I'm a queer or whatever. And, you know, and put a negative connotation to something like that when that's not the, the case at all. And so... You know, your brain is is processing that, processing what was my involvement in it, and am, am I in trouble here? And so it was it was probably a couple of days after that that I received a phone call from you know, the Lone Oak Police Department asking me if I would come in. That my name kept coming up multiple times, and so I called my friend again. I said, "Hey, we need we need to meet again." You know, I told him I said, "I'm I'm going to go in. I'm I'm." I'm, I'm going to tell them everything. I'm, I'm, you know, whatever happens, whatever happens, but I'm going to tell them about, you know, lying at the first court. I'm going to tell them all about the group. I really don't want to name names, but I'm going to try to do everything that I can without naming names. And that's what I did the next afternoon. What was your friend's reaction when you said that? He supported me. He said, I, I figured you would. He said, you're going to have to. He said, you you know too much. You, you, you've been too involved in this and you're, you're going to have to go and tell them everything. And I, and I did. I can imagine that was very scary for you. And and since I just tried to put myself in that place and imagine what it would be like to go into that police station and tell what had been going on and what you knew for so long, was it intimidating for you? How'd you feel? It was scary. Um, I didn't want to say anything wrong. I really felt that that I was doing the right thing, there was a part of me that, like I said, that was still just a little concerned about, I didn't want to get in trouble. And of course, now looking back in hindsight, I mean, that was a ridiculous thought for me to think, but I mean, Jack had so much, you know, control and everything else over us that, you know, I didn't know where I stood in this realm of things. You know, I knew what was going to happen with Jack. I, I didn't want it to happen to anybody else, but I was, you know, part of the group when so many other people had got initiated into it and, and I knew it had to stop. And this was, you know, the only way that I knew you know, was to just go in there and just, and just tell my story. And, and like I told you earlier, you know, I went in and sat down and it was sometime in the afternoon. I, I want to say it was, I don't know, maybe three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And I sat down with, 
Now, Chief Pickett was there. I think his investigator was there, and there may have been a third person there. You know, as I started talking, I mean, within just the first few minutes, you know, they were somebody was taking notes with pencil and paper and within a few minutes, you know, they said, wait, we, we got to stop. We need, we, we got to record this. This is, you know, this is too much information. Um, you know, and then they got a recorder out and I believe the rest of the, I believe the rest of my, you know, I guess deposition is, uh, was recorded. Did you feel a relief after that was done? I, I did. I mean, I was still scared. You know, part of me, I didn't know what I what I just did. I, I had really hoped that. I think the biggest thing was, I hope this works. I, I I hope that this puts him away, because if not, and he somehow, you know, pulls this out again with what he did with Doug and Cletus, you know, he's going to kill me. That was my initial thought, was that, God, I hope this works. You know, I hope that there are enough of us that are telling this story. That was probably the only time that I had ever really been scared of what Jack could do. But there were so many people that were talking. Deep down, I knew it was going to work. I knew he was going to go away. I just didn't know for how long. But, you know, but there was that nagging feeling, what if he does somehow pull this out, you know, he's going to know that I talked and he's going to know that I gave them five years worth of information, five, six years worth. And that didn't really sit well with me because I mean, you know, that's, that's just kind of the way that, that he would work, but there's no telling what he would have, what he would have done. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't focus on that a lot. I, I, you know, took my faith that there was enough of us coming forward that, it was going to happen and he was going to go away. So how'd that investigation play out then for you? Did you just talk that one time and then? So I, yeah, so I had that initial, had that initial talk. And then of course I came back in, I had the books that, you know, that I had had in my possession for, you know, a few years at that point, ever since, you know, Doug and Cletus's lawsuit, you know, I, I went back in and, and turned those back in. At some point I did meet with Betty Dickey, I met with her for a couple of hours, a few hours maybe, and again, kind of ran through, you know, everything that I knew and, you know, kind of repeated, basically repeated my story, you know, back to her. My case ended up being one of the ones that they did not, you know, seek charges on. I don't know if I was too old at the time. I think by the time everything happened now, I think I'm 22 you know, there was some talk about statute of limitations and, and things like that. But for whatever reason, they, you know, it was decided that, yes, they would use my information, but mine was not going to be one of the ones that they were going to, you know, go after. But they had plenty of others that they were going to go after, and they still needed my information to, you know, basically help cooperate everybody else's stories. And I was, you know, at that point, I was, you know, more than willing to to give it. You know, I'd kind of kind of jumped in, kind of jumped in the water with both feet. And once I was in, I was in. That's amazing that you did that because I'm sure it was hard for you knowing that you're actually what happened to you couldn't be charged, but you still wanted to give your story for other people. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and the hardest part, honestly, was was telling my parents, because after I had met with the Lona Police Department that evening, I went to my parents' house and had to tell them what had happened. And of course, they were aware of the lawsuit between Jack and Cletus and Doug a few years back. And but they knew that that I had, you know, that I had supported Jack and, you know, I, you know, you know, they believed me that, oh, no, absolutely. I don't know what's going on. Obviously, Doug's a liar. And, you know, this couldn't happen. And now I have to sit there and tell them that, no, you know, not only was Doug 
telling the truth, but, you know, this has happened to me for the last five years of my life. And, you know, and I've gone to the police and I've told them, you know, everything that's, that's happened to me. And, and my parents were very, you know, they were, you know, they were in shock too. They didn't, they didn't really know what to say, um, you know, at that. And so that, that was probably the hardest part, honestly, was, was not telling the police, but telling my parents. I can imagine. So after that happened, then what what happened next? At this point, I you know, like I said, I talked to talked to Betty Dickey, and I and I think I had a couple of conversations with her. I think I went to her office. I know I went to her to her office once for for a lengthy interview, and then I think maybe I may have gone back again, and I may have talked to her on the phone a couple of times because, like I said, somewhere at some point, I did find out that for whatever reason, they, you know, they were, they were not using me as one of the people, one of the, the counts that they were going to charge Jack with from there. You know, I was working at this time and had a life. Uh, I was working at going back to school and, you know, I just kind of kept tabs, you know, I mean, obviously it was in the papers, it was on the news. I mean, there was a lot of media coverage, uh, even for back then. I couldn't imagine what the media coverage would be like today. If something like that happened with, with the amount of media that we have at our fingertips today, this case would have been unbelievable. It was on every every news station. It was in the, you know, it was in the paper and it was pretty easy to, to keep up with. You know, my mom and dad would, or my mom rather, would, would call me and kind of give me updates as she would hear, you know, things about the court. Anyways, and I really didn't do a whole lot with it until sentencing day. And I went to court on sentencing day because I needed to, I needed to hear what was going to happen. And I knew that he had already, that he was going to plead guilty, but I, I, I you know, I, I needed to hear what was going to happen. So you, can you kind of set the stage for that and, and kind of explain what that was like going in there? What, what the courtroom was like? It was surreal. After I'd given everything to to Miss Dickey and given her everything and given the police everything, I I kind of stepped out from it, and um, my mom went with me to the to the hearing or to the sentencing, and um, you know we we walked in and we had gotten there a little bit late, so the only the only places really to sit was towards the back of the courtroom because I mean it was full. You know there were a ton of people there. You know, and I was, you know, and I'm looking through, I saw parents of boys that I knew. I saw a couple of boys that I knew sitting in the, you know, in, in there and I saw, you know, reporters that I knew, you know, from TV, you know, and this wasn't your third string reporter. This is one of the main, you know, one of the main reporters uh, for the television stations that were there. And as I was uh, sitting there at some point, they brought Heath in and, uh, the first time I'd seen him in years, and he kind of sat across from me and uh, kind of towards the back. And, uh, you know, we both, again, in today's lingo, it would be the, the the what's up nod. You know, we both kind of looked at each other and smiled, and you know, he nodded it up, up head nodded at me, I head nodded at him. And, uh, you know, and then they brought Jack in and, you know, read through everything and said what was going to happen, and it was just... It was scary to be in that room, knowing that something was going to happen, but just not knowing what it was going to be. And, you know, wanting to hear that final, okay, this is it. He's going to jail. He's going to jail for, you know, for this and this and this amount of time and for this, for his, you know, for the rest of his life. You know, it's like, okay, he's not getting out. He's not getting out ever again. We're, 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 this is done. It's over. And, 
you know, when I went outside, one of the guys that was one of the, the ones that I had looked up to, he was a couple years older than me. He and I had remained in contact as well. And uh, I didn't realize that he was there. And when he walked out, we saw each other and we just walked up to each other and just gave each other, you know, a huge hug. And, you know, we were both like, it's over. It's, it's done. You know, we can, we can go, we can go on. We're, we're done. You know, we did it. And uh, I remember calling into work and taking off the rest of the day because it was just, you know, I needed that time just to kind of reflect and rest and, and realize that it was over, you know. And then from there, you know, I did keep up a little bit with, you know, where he went and, and you know, where he was. And, and uh, you know, and aside from that, you know, I haven't really, there was a time a few years ago that I think he came up for a possible a role, you know, and I looked into looked into that and went to the website, and I think I actually submitted a uh, kind of an anonymous type letter to them, telling why I felt that he shouldn't, you know, have parole. And mm-hmm. you know, they had a picture of him, and it was the first time I had seen him since the hearing, you know. And he was this old, old little gray-headed man, but you know, he still had that look in his in his face, you know, that you know that it was still Jack. I can't imagine how freeing that felt for you, but also how hard that was for you to go through all that. It was. It's kind of like finishing a race you never wanted to start in the first place. Did you feel a sense of relief immediately, or did it take a while for you to finally realize that it was over? I did when I hugged my friend in the parking lot. That was when he hit me. Because it was somebody else to be able to tell me, hey, this is real. And that was, and like I said, and he was one of the guys that I looked up to, you know, he was one of the ones during my initiation that, oh yeah, he's part of the group. I can honestly say that I have seen evil. I know what evil is. And I saw that, you know, there's been a renewed interest in, in both Heath's case and Jack and, uh, you know, it's come back into my life again. But I'm at a point now where you know, I can talk about it. You know, there's a story just to be told if, and stop it from happening to someone else. And like I told you, I mean, the, the, the reason that I'm the reason that I'm doing this is is because it's not for me so much. And I wanted to see if I could find that good reason to do it. And, you know, it's just that it goes back to Heath. I don't know what Jack's involvement was that night. I have no idea. I don't know that he was there. I know that there's been some speculation that that's happened. But what I do know is that if Jack had never been involved in Heath's life, Heather and Barbara and Joe would still be alive today. I have no doubt of that in my mind. And I know other people that agree with me on that. Going back to Reverend Marble, who was the pastor at the Stocks Family Church and who testified on the stand that he not only knew about the abuse that Heath had suffered at the hands of Jack Walls, but also that Jack had instructed him to kill his family. He wrote Heath a letter while he was in jail. It's dated March 24th, 1997, and here's what it says. Dear Heath, First, may I say that I'm sorry I have not been by to see you lately. There have been many demands upon my time by a number of members with sickness, counseling, and tragedies. But not a day goes by that you aren't in my thoughts and my prayers. I returned yesterday morning to Concord after a brief trip out of town to find that you were, and rightly so, upset with me. 
I can't blame you, and I'm sorry that my confidentiality had been broken by someone who loves you and your family dearly. Over these past two months, there has not been a day gone by that someone, many not even members of Concord, hasn't come into my study here at the church just to talk, to help, if we can, to understand it all, all asking the same questions for which I have no answers. As you can imagine, it's a mixed bag of feelings running the complete gambit, even within the same family. I know that not an hour goes by that you aren't sitting there with many of the same thoughts on your mind. As I told you that Friday in Little Rock, I will not desert you. I will walk with you whatever walk we must take. I will pray for you and look forward to visiting with you. After what happened, I'm not sure you want to see me. But if you should, drop me a note. I've enclosed a self-addressed stamped envelope. Your pastor and friend, Bob. Reading that, it just kind of reminds me a little bit of the letter that we read earlier that Jack had written Heath, and it seems like another letter where it's a little bit strange, and you're not quite sure what he's trying to say. Is there some kind of hidden meaning here? What is Heath upset about with Reverend Marble at this time? He was talking about the church family that we had, and the anger and the pain that the congregation felt. And he had asked me if I'd be willing to write a letter and apologize and share. And I wrote him the letter. And um, he told me afterward that he couldn't read that letter because in that letter I was trying to explain things and lay things out. And he said that, you know, he couldn't read that letter. And, you know, one of the, one of the points of contention that he and I had was that he claimed that I should have told law enforcement about what happened and what I had told him. He said that he told me to tell them, and he did not. And then he turned around and then apologized to me because he had been dishing information that he got in conversations with me and the family to people in the congregation at church. So what it told me is that he was willing to share information as long as it was a conversation that he was having with other people and he wanted to do it. But if it was actually meant to help someone else, then he wasn't willing to. For me, that was very two-sided. It's like, here's my mom coming to you, and you don't do anything. She tells you what she saw. You don't do anything. You come ask me, I tell you, you don't do anything. People at church ask you, and you'll tell them anything and everything. No problem whatsoever. So you're willing to tell people who don't have the power to do anything, but you're unwilling to tell people who have the power to do something, to bring them healing, is what he said. And then when I wrote it, he said, I can't use that. I can't read that. Because in the letter, I was talking about what I went through, what I went through with Dad, you know, and how, you know, people knew they knew about Dad and what he did, and they didn't do anything. And, you know, I understood that they they needed to hear how sorry I was that everything happened. I will never not be sorry for everything that happened. I had to live with that the rest of my life. And... The other side of that is I wanted them to understand everything that happened that was a part of that. At the end of this victim impact hearing, Jack is sentenced to four life sentences plus 40 years to be served concurrently. Judge Hanshaw's dissertation from when Jack is sentenced includes a couple of interesting points. He says, I do not have to believe Heath Stock's testimony that you told him to kill his family to know that he was your finest creation and perhaps the most vulnerable victim and to know that he became what you taught him to be. 
I only know that in the very least, you are indirectly responsible for the deaths of Joe, Barbara, and Heather Stocks. I do not have to believe Doug Hogan's story that you attempted to unbuckle his pants to know that you have caused others to ridicule the Hogans and attempt to make them less than they are in the eyes of the public, and that many of these young men stalked the Hogans for you. And by way of disclaimer, this court never knew of that 1993 charge or its outcome until all of these more recent activities were made public. It has been said, and I was reminded not long ago by my pastor, that no one stands so tall as when he stoops to help a child. What a wonderful opportunity you had to justify the trust placed in you by all these young people to teach them about moral and spiritual things and values and good choices. But you failed in this. After the judge read his dissertation and the hearing wrapped up, the victims were then called into the judge's chambers. I can remember us, all the victims were called into the judge's chambers. And he addressed all of us, and he had a prayer book that he signed and passed out to everyone. And I can remember, um, I actually asked uh, Mr. Hanshaw, he said, what about Heath? Is there, what can you do to help Heath? And uh, Mr. Hanshaw saying that um, it was out of his hands. It was out of his hands. And, you know, I remember I was in the courtroom for Anshaw to read his statement, you know, um, before he sentenced Jack. And, you know, to actually hear him say that he didn't have to believe my testimony, to know that I was Jack's most vulnerable victim and these other things, and to know that he was the least indirectly responsible for the death of my mother, father, and sister. And for me to have come to prison and, you know, for the judge to make comments to Edgar about me being a cold-blooded murderer and that they believed that I was snowing and faking back then, for me to take the MMPI test and them saying I was malingering or faking results, here I am going to court. Here I am telling you what happened. Now you believe it. Now you say it has changed your opinion of the elements of what I was charged with, and you're saying there's nothing that you can do. Well, for one, it would take an attorney filing an appeal and get me back in court. I had already been in prison for a year by that point, and nobody wanted to touch the case. Jack's father was still alive. All the attorneys that my family went and talked to, none of them wanted to take it, or that were willing to take it, wanted hundreds of thousands of dollars to file an appeal with no promises of a change result. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, if you plead guilty in a case, then you only have a matter of months to appeal, and you lose the right to appeal a lot of different things. I didn't know anything about the law. I didn't know that then. It would take me years to learn enough about the law to know that by pleading guilty, I severely limited myself on the ways that I could feel and what I could feel. But there were options. There were options that he could have wrote a letter saying that he didn't feel like that the sentence was just, or that if he had known about these things that he would not have accepted my plea and went to trial so that lesser including offenses could have been considered like first-degree murder, second-degree murder. There were lots of things that could have happened that didn't happen. 
for the very fact that someone else asked him. I didn't ask him, and that was his response. It was very telling for me. I couldn't even get the prayer book because I was fixing to go back to state prison, and I couldn't take anything back with me. And there was a sense of hope back then. We're talking about something that's over 25 years ago, and that now that people knew something would change. And I can remember the trustees in the jail saying, man, something's going to change for you, man. Something's going to happen for you. Unfortunately, because of his statements in that hearing, Jack files an appeal, and the Supreme Court rules that the statement was biased. And because of that, Jack's sentence is reduced, but not by much. Jack is ultimately sentenced to three life terms, plus three 40-year terms, to be served concurrently. As it stands, Jack will never get out of prison. One thing that really sticks out to me, though, and has been mentioned to us in some of the interviews, kind of people's opinions on how this played out, it's very curious that Judge Hanshaw said that in his dissertation because he was also the judge that worked very closely with Larry Cook. He was also the judge that sentenced Heath. So he's been involved in this. He knows the law, and he probably knows better than to say something like that because something like that is going to give Jack the opportunity that he had. It really makes you wonder, was it said with good intentions or was it said with intentions to help Jack? And like we talked about, that list of things in that case that make you wonder, add this to that list. Unlike so many times before, Jack's privilege and power are not able to keep him out of trouble this time. And there's hope that his reign of terror has finally come to an end. While Jack's sentence gave many boys comfort in knowing he could no longer terrorize them, that wasn't the case for all of his victims. It was hard going through what I went through growing up. It was hard to go through that whole thing at court and with all the questioning and you know, being interviewed and all that. But, you know... When Jack got sentenced to prison, most of the people out there didn't have to deal with him anymore. Me and Wade still did. Because when Jack got sent to prison, a lot of people did not think kindly of him because of what he done. And so he got lots of fights. And there's a lot of people in prison that were victimized as children and grew up become men that were broken and angry. And prison can be a very tough place for those people who victimized children. And when I got out to Cummins, that's where I found out that Jack had been offering $5,000 for anybody in prison that would silence me. Now the threat's back on. So Jack been going around offering to have $5,000 paid to anybody who was willing to kill me in prison to shut me up. So I had three different people that come to me. And, uh, you know, I squared off with them. And I, you know, I was, you know, because I didn't know what to expect. And they're like, hey, man, I said, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I'll do, but I'm not doing anything for a child molester. He said, in fact, we kicked his ass over here because he was trying to pay somebody to do something new. And you know what? No. So it went from there, and it just got worse because I would spend the next 25 years living in purses with different child molesters, and every one of them that ever served time with Jack had heard my story. And we come to me and say, I know you. Jack used to talk to you, talk about you all the time. And 
to look at those people and say, I was a little kid back then. I'm not a kid now. Don't think you've got anything coming with me. That's the way I approach them. It's like, you know, hey, I was a kid back then. So I can tell you whatever. You can believe whatever. But if you put your hands on me, I'm going to deal with you. And uh, when Jack went to Ricky's, he got a job working in mental health as a clerk and got access to a phone and was actually calling Wade and other victims from the prison. Uh, Miss Dickey actually told us later on that she had to contact the ADC, and then they did an investigation and found out that Jack had got access to a phone that was unsecure and was calling victims from the free world. And over the years, he did it more than once because he got access to a cell phone one time. And they went and shook him down and found that he had been hiding the cell phone on the table. Over the years, I talked to I talked to Larissa, who is Wade's ex-wife, and she said that it used to mess Wade up to listen to messages on the answering machine where Jack, they hear the message from the ADC, you have a collect call from Arkansas Department of Corrections, inmate such and such, or her to come in the house and see Wade in there with a phone in his hands and he'd be crying and whispering and getting on the phone. It re-emphasized that whole thing of there is no getting away. There is no escape from him. And, and saying the same thing that I was about, you know, Jack, you have somebody who was an expert manipulator, and he comes in the system. These people are not used to messing with people like that. I mean, even in here, he was able to manipulate. So once Jack goes to prison, he has many different jobs in many different areas of the prison, which gives him access to a lot of different things, including a phone. And he starts calling Wade and harassing him and tormenting him. It's just relentless. He calls Wade over and over again. I mean, he hasn't changed. He got in prison and he started making calls to Alka's sons, to the little brother of the one he had molested. And so we had to get hold of the head of, of the prison to say, you got to stop Jack. He has worked his way up into a position where he has access to a phone. There's no question. I mean, I, I wish him to suffer long and die without ever getting out. Unfortunately, as a result of all of this trauma and from being abused for almost his entire life, Wade dies by suicide on March 20th, 2003, at the age of 23 years old. We have a document in which Wade's widow, Lisa, recounted what happened the day that Wade took his life. She said he kept putting his hands on the sides of her face and telling her how much he loved her. He kept giving her things of his to put away for her children when they got older, like a watch he said that was aggravating him. They ended up leaving the house that day, and he had his gun with him. When they got home, he sat in a lawn chair with a gun between his legs, and at this point, Jack had been calling their house for months. They would change their number, have it unlisted, but he would always find a way to find Wade. She took the bullets out of the gun, and they went and laid on the bed together, where he told her how much he loved her, and he stayed with her until she began to doze off. She saw him leave the room, but noticed the bullets were still where she left them, and she thought, as long as she had those it would be okay. She still had a strange feeling, so she got out of bed and realized that he had locked her in the bedroom. She heard a pop 
and saw him fall over outside and thought someone had shot him. She broke open the door and rushed outside to him. And while on the ground with him, she noticed red statues in the yard and remembers thinking, what are those and how did they get here? She had to run past them to get to him. At this point, there were people in the street. She was screaming and she saw the EMTs washing the red statues with a garden hose. She realized at that point that those were her children. He had shot himself, not realizing that they were standing there playing with the puppies that he had bought for them that very morning. Were you surprised when Wade killed himself? Yes, yes. I hated that. You know, I wish it, that's what I said. I, I retired and I left. And I guess in my own mind, I was thinking, well, I ran off and left him. He didn't have anybody to, that he could turn to. He could always turn to his dad and his mom. He could always do that. His mom and dad are great people, and he could have turned to them, but he wanted to turn to somebody that was outside that was away from that. And I think that's why he came to my office. When Jack was finally sentenced, what would you have liked to have seen? Oh, I would like to have seen the death penalty. I have two that I prosecuted who weren't nearly, nearly as culpable in their, in their criminal actions as Jack. They're on death row. But that was not possible. Jack should never get out, and I wrote letters to that effect. You don't do that kind of evil things to children. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share on what of prosecuting Jack? I didn't want to share these thoughts, but it is necessary to keep telling the story. In the next episode, we will discuss what life has been like for Heath during the 26 years that he has been in prison. How has Heath had to adjust and adapt in order to survive? Has he been able to overcome the years of trauma and abuse? What are his relationships like with his family and friends on the outside? And at what point will he be ready to tell the story of what he says actually happened the night that his family was murdered? Life Without, the untold story of Heath Stocks, is brought to you by Watts Productions and Block Party. Produced by Dylan Edward Allen, Colby Watts, and Katie Anthony. Archival materials provided by the Stocks family, the Harris family, Samantha Jones, and the Freedom of Information Act. Music by Colin Thomas. All information in this podcast is based on interviews from people close to the case, never-before-seen insider documents, legal documents, FOIA documents, victim impact statements, and sworn affidavits. All parties mentioned in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty. For more information on this podcast and Heath Stocks, visit heathstockspodcast.com. For more information about the groundbreaking Scouts film, which features Heath Stocks, visit scoutsdocumentary.com.